Well, good evening. Again, just want to make sure that all the ladies in the house get signed up for conference. It's going to be an incredible time together. You can do the QR code. Pastor Ray may not know how to do it, but we'll teach you if you need to, if you need to learn how. Or you can just go right out to the lobby after service and we'll help you sign up. Are you guys awake tonight? Okay, thank the Lord. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to jump right into our text this evening. We're in the midst of a series called Faith Under Pressure. And we're focusing the next seven weeks on seven messages to the church in Revelation. And each week we're going to be focusing on a unique church. And so this is the second week of the series and we're looking at the first church of Ephesus. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. And just to kind of let you know if you're a guest here, these are the moments in our services where we come around the scriptures. We believe here at Calvary that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe it is relevant for us today. So we look to these moments as a community to come around the scriptures, to learn more about who God is, who Jesus is, how are we called to respond with our lives to the saving message of Jesus? And ultimately, how are we called to walk with God's spirit each and every day and begin to actually participate in what God is trying to do in the world, amen? Amen, so let's begin to read this together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yes, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Heavenly Father, take this word, speak to us, Lord, encourage our hearts, challenge our hearts. Lord God, I pray that even right now, all the different things that we're thinking about, the distractions, the things that our heart continues to ponder on, might right now you help to focus us so that we could hear this word this week and that we could hear exactly what it is that you would see fit for us. And so, Father, we love you. We thank you. We worship you. In your precious name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. A few days ago was the 25th anniversary of AOL Instant Messenger. And all of you are now, you're thinking about, oh my gosh, I remember that. That was a big deal, Right? And on Instagram, there were people who were posting about what their username was. And, you know, you could pick anything for your username. I know that my wife, for example, hers was Snow Fox. Huh? <laughs> kind of cool. She liked snowboarding back in the day, so she was Snow Fox. But, you know, young people would pick, you know, their favorite, you know, maybe movie character or their, their favorite song or something that was meaningful for them is what they would decide to use to be their screen name. Let me tell you what mine was. Mine was Maranatha with some numbers after it. Now, some of you are laughing because you know what that word means. Maranatha, you translate it, it means, uh, oh God, come, oh, or, oh Lord, come. 
It's, it's about the second coming of Jesus. That tells you a lot about, I, I'm like a proper church kid, because at 10 years old, that's my, my screen name is Maranatha. And to be honest with you, it makes sense because I was raised in the church. The idea of the end times, the idea of the second coming, this is like I was raised thinking about these things and pondering these things. I read all the Left Behind series books, and I got to tell you, they scared me. They frightened me a little bit. I remember in 2000, um, DC Talk, if you remember that band, they re-released a song by Larry Norman. Some of you guys might know this song. It was called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Do you guys, did anybody remember this song? Let me, let me read you the lyrics and I'll tell you why it frightened me. Are you ready? Speaking of, of the end times, this idea of, of, of the rapture of the church, life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled to the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children died, the days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and the other one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. How frightening is that? Right? I mean, that, that's, there's some scary children dying and, and, you know, gold being able to buy bread must be some type of food shortage in the future. That, this is, I don't like this. And it wasn't just, you know, songs or, or books. It was movies. Remember the Omega Code? Remember that one? Timed perfectly its release, right? October before the Y2K crisis. Just a prime time to get the fear going, you know? And it wasn't any help with my parents. You know, I remember watching a TBN special with my dad. And in the TBN special, it was about the end times. And in the, the show, a dad who was a pastor, because at that point in history, they were thinking that, you know, it's going to be illegal to be a Christian. So the police come and they break into the home and they take the dad and they throw him into prison. You know what my dad said to me around 11 years old? You know, Daniel, that could happen to me. <laughs> so I've grown up with a lot of, of fear thinking about the end times. I've grown up with a lot of, of concern thinking about what might come. And that even at times made me look at the book of Revelation and say, yeah, I'm gonna kind of just like leave that one off to the side. I'll just hang out in the gospels the rest of my life and just look at the words of Jesus. But here's the deal. Studying Revelation, reading Revelation should not cause us fear for the future. In fact, what I would say is it actually should cause us great hope for the future. And while Revelation is apocalyptic in its genre, it's actually a discipleship book for disciples. In fact, there's actually great language used in this book to showcase how can we, in the midst of difficult times, be faithful to the way of Jesus. This is why it fits beautifully under this umbrella of faith under pressure. And so what I want to do tonight is I want us to look at this letter to the church in Ephesus. Now remember, each week we're going to look at a different message to one of these churches. And so ours this evening begins with these words, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. 
Now there's gonna be certain language used in the midst of the next seven weeks that we're gonna have to process a little bit. For example, when it says to the angel, is this actually a real like angelic being type of angel? Or is it just using the term angel to equate a, a messenger? Or is angel maybe the ethos or like the spirit of these churches? And you'll see scholars make you know, different opinions on which one it is, but what we really need to realize and understand is that these messages from Jesus are to a messenger, whether, whether angelic or even maybe just the leader or the pastor of this church, it's to that messenger, but it is for the church. See, these are real churches. These are real congregations. Ephesus was a real group of people living in the city of Ephesus. And this is a message that Jesus spoke to a messenger to then give to them. And what we need to understand for our context tonight is that yes, it was written to the church in Ephesus. So it is to them, but it is also for us. Now, the messages we're gonna read over the next seven weeks, they have, for the most part, a framework that they follow. There's commendations, encouragement. Most of them, them have condemnations. Here's a challenge, here's something that you need to shift. And then also a, a future hope or a blessing. So to the church in Ephesus, continues to say, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. As we read earlier in Revelation 1 last week, the lampstands represent these seven churches. And you might ask yourself the question, why these seven churches? Well, in the scriptures, seven is the number of completeness. And so when, when Jesus is speaking to these seven, in a way, he's talking to the complete church. In fact, in a commentary on Revelation, Daryl Johnson says this, it turns out that the seven churches of Asia embody every major issue with which the church has struggled in every age, in every cultural setting. So while this message is to a specific congregation 2,000 years ago, it is also for us. Not to us, but it is for us. Now let's understand a little bit of the cultural context of Ephesus, being that it's a real city. And when John is writing this, Ephesus, it's the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. About a quarter of a million people lived in this city. This was a, a proper city. It was known for consumerism and business and finance and entertainment. Ephesus was uh, home to the Pan-Ionian Games, which was basically the second largest sporting event outside of the Olympics. Ephesus was also home to the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis or as the Romans called her, Diana. She was the fertility goddess, the embodiment of sexuality and lust. And her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. And so it's said about the city that you could go and come to Ephesus and you would get to witness all of what Greco-Roman life was all about. A city centered on business and politics and religious pluralism. And in this context amidst a deeply influential church. Now this church was planted by the Apostle Paul. 
Eventually, the apostle Paul left. Uh, then it was taken over by Timothy. Timothy was inevitably killed by Rome. And then ultimately, John, who is getting this vision from Jesus, who's writing this message, he ends up taking over the church as the pastor. And in fact, one, uh, someone who we all might know, a person named Mary, who happened to be the mother of Jesus, at one point she attended this congregation. So what is it that Jesus would say to this church? Now it begins with commendations. It begins with encouragement. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Now catch what Jesus said. I know your works. What we need to realize is that Jesus is aware of his church. He is not unaware of what is taking place. When you see these, these big scandals happening in the midst of the church, which are heartbreaking for the body of Christ, Jesus is not unaware of this. He is fully aware what, of ta- uh, what is taking place within the context of his church. He's concerned for them. He cares for them. This church was, was willing to have strenuous effort to the point of exhaustion for the kingdom of God. This was a busy church. They were doing a lot of really good things. They were busy. They were doing incredible works for the kingdom of God. They possessed a patient endurance that even under extreme pressure, they could hang in there and continue to move forward. They had an inner sense uh, of an attitude of long-suffering. See, the church in Ephesus, when they faced opposition to their faith, they did not bow their knee to Caesar as God, and they refused to participate in the idolatrous worship of Diana. And they also patiently accepted the consequences of that. For some of them, they were rejected by friends, rejected by civil leaders. They lost customers. They were boycotted by the business community. But even so, they patiently endured for the sake of Christ. And so the commendations continue, verse two, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. This church had sound orthodoxy. They were aware of the word of God. They were taught by competent individuals who could share the reality of of good, sound doctrine. So when ideas would come into the church or people would come in declaring to be apostles, and they would begin to speak things that did not align with the word of God, this church would say, yep, no thank you. That's not gonna work. And in fact, this is actually something that Paul warned them in Acts chapter 20. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. We get an idea as to what may have been one of these groups of people who had tried to come into this church. If you go a little further to Revelation 2, verse 6, the text said, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, this group of people is going to pop up in another letter later on, or message later on. But nothing's really known about their identity. We don't exactly know what they were trying to push, what type of doctrine or what type of behavior they were pushing. But the main point that we can grab from this is that 
the mention of the Nicolaitans is showcasing the reality that we need to be looking out for individuals or groups who try to teach unbiblical ideas and introduce unbiblical practices. That's something that we have to be cautious of in the midst of the culture we live in, the connected culture we live in, where we can go on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and we can hear all these different ideas. We have to be sound enough in our understanding of the way of Jesus to be able to say, you know what? Yeah, I understand your heart. I love you as a person, but that does not align with the way of Jesus. Now listen to the words of what Jesus said though, because it's really important to hear the wording of verse six. He's not encouraging them because they hate the Nicolaitans. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. That is very important for us. We may not like a teaching that tries to come in, but that does not mean that we hate that person. We love that person, but we have to protect what we understand to be sound biblical doctrine. Now the encouragements keep coming in verse three. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So again, this is a church that is energetic in their service. They're patient in their suffering. They held to orthodoxy and orthopraxy, meaning that they were committed to purity of doctrine and purity of life. And so you might wanna start asking yourself, then what's wrong with them? Right? I mean, this sounds pretty good, right? Good orthodoxy, sound doctrine, sound life. They're, they're being guarded by what type of information is coming in. How might this be different than what the word of God says? You might be thinking this church has it all together. But then here comes the challenge or the condemnation. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You abandoned the love you had at first for me, is what Jesus is saying. This church had everything going right except for the one thing Jesus deserved most, and that is first love. This church had external forms of devotion and they had increased, but inner depths of love for Jesus decreased. Affection and intimacy with Jesus were gone. And it's interesting because based upon Paul's letter 40 years earlier, it's almost as if that he knew that this might be the propensity for this congregation. He, he, maybe in his pastoring, he knew that they were, yes, they loved the word, they loved teaching, they loved to hold on to sound doctrine, and they loved to do good works, they loved to extend out and press into the kingdom of God. But he warns them 40 years earlier in fact, he prays for them and says, I pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being what? Rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, the tendency for the church is to, to move on from first love. Knowingly or unknowingly, we uproot first love and we make it okay for love and intimacy with Jesus to become secondary to our doing for Jesus. And this is what the issue was for this church. They did a lot of great things for Jesus. 
but they stopped being with him. They stopped loving him in the way that he deserves to be loved. See, what we need to realize, friends, is that we cannot confuse activity for Jesus as the same as abiding with Jesus. You might be serving in every ministry of this church. You might be doing incredible things for the kingdom of God. You might be every single morning maybe even, you know, making sure that you're, you're clear with your doctrine so that you can leave out and write the perfect Facebook post, whatever it might be. But the reality is if you have lost your first love, that will never be sustained. See, what Jesus deserves most from us is that a deep abiding type of love. Listen to the words of a pastor named Earl Palmer. He calls this the Ephesus problem. The Ephesus problem happens quietly and by gradual shifts of focus. A man or a woman is first united with the church, the Christian church, because of having discovered and believed in Jesus and his love. After a few years of being a Christian, the person becomes a leader in the church with very heavy responsibilities for the fellowship. But something happens along the way. That person, who because of giftedness and hard work may now stand at the vortex of church politics and decision-making, experiences a subtle shift in style of life. That person is adrift as a disciple and finds himself or herself motivated and nourished by the organization or by controversy or by ambition to hold power. The first love has been replaced while perhaps no one was aware of the replacement. The first love has been abandoned and in its place is the starchy high cholesterol diets of activity and church work that will never nourish the human soul. See friends, we must be committed to sound and pure doctrine and purity of life. But for that to sustain under pressure of the cultural moment in which we find ourselves in, these things must be rooted in deep abiding love with Jesus. See, this is how you have faith under pressure. To have faith under pressure demands orthodoxy, right believing, and orthopraxy, right living, but both are sustained in a convergent zone of love for and communion with Jesus. That's where it has to be. That's where we have to secure ourselves. The reality is this. You might have the best doctrine in the world. You might be able to live out your Christian reality. You might be able to you know, have faith with deeds. You might be able to do so, but if it is not rooted in love, it will inevitably fail. And here's what will happen. You might have sound doctrine, but you will have a legalistic heart. And you might do good works, but it's no longer because it's out of a love for Jesus. It's because you want people to see how well you love others or supposedly do. Look at me and all the great things that I'm doing for the church. Look at all the ministries that I'm serving in. Look at all these things that I'm doing. Look at me, look at me. That's never what this was ever about. It's always been about having to have this deep abiding love with Jesus Christ. And the minute that we begin to walk away from that love, it is going to be dismantled. It just can't be sustained. It has to be rooted in this deep affection for Jesus. I mean, Jesus said it in John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears what? Much fruit. 
And this is the key line, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's the reality. Many of us in this room, we are too busy for intimacy with Jesus. We're too busy. Too much stuff going on. We're working too many hours. We're focused elsewhere. We're trying to do our best to follow after the way of Jesus, but we have, much like this church, we have uprooted the number one thing that needs to take place. And it's not sustainable. And so what does Jesus say? He says, well, you need to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. You need to repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So this is kind of the, this is the how. This is the part where we begin to process through, okay, if maybe I have lost first love, if maybe I have, yes, maybe I've even stuck to sound doctrine and I've been trying to live out my faith, but I'm not sure if I really love Jesus anymore. If you're maybe sensing that right now, and to be honest with you, I actually felt this a few weeks ago. In fact, it was funny because I got to speak on this passage a couple years ago, and when I saw the teaching calendar that I had this one, I thought, oh, that's lame. I did this one a couple years ago. And Jesus said, is it really lame? Because I think you need to figure this out. I think you need to understand that there are times too, Daniel, where you can, you can put together a message and you can do these great things for the kingdom of God, but are you taking the time to be with me, to love me, to have intimate relationship with me? And there are times where even I do not do that. And I bet you every single person on our staff would say there's moments where they fall out of that as well. So first thing we have to do is we need to remember the Greek imperative is present, meaning that we need to keep on remembering, to hold on to memory, to call to mind what we know to be true. Now, here's the problem with this. And I want to talk specifically to us in our context. It's really hard to remember in our distracted secular age that we live in. See, remembering demands recognition and reflection and confession. I love this from Alan Noble. He says, the constant distraction of our culture shields us from the type of deep, honest reflection needed to ask why we exist and what is true. See, friends, we need moments of stillness and quiet, times of remembrance so that we can be reminded of the goodness of God and what Jesus did on the cross and what I have been called into. But we're too busy for that. And so we never get to that place of being overwhelmed by the goodness of God that would lead us to this deep love for Jesus. And we need, to, we need to shift that. We need to relearn, or maybe even as we sang earlier, re-surrender to times and moments where we can just be with Jesus. But the problem is we're too distracted for intimacy with Jesus. We're too plugged into our digital world. Time with Jesus is overtaken by time with TikTok or or scrolling other people's timelines, or binge-watching The Office for the 10th time, and some of you the 20th. But see, we need to create space to remember. But it's not just remembering the goodness of God. It's not just drawing our attention to the truth and the reality of Scripture. Jesus says remembrance must lead to what? To repentance. Repentance is a sharp break from evil. 
To repent is to turn around, to stop, and to make a radical U-turn. In remembrance, we're, we are to call up what we know to be true and through personal examination, compare in our reality to the truth and respond to it in repentance. That's the connection here. Remembrance draws up truth. We take the truth found in the word of God. We compare it to the way that we are living, thinking, our attitudes, our posture in life. And then if it's not aligned with the way of Jesus, we repent of that. We turn from evil and we begin to live out a different reality. But the problem is our distracted secular age makes this really hard too. Because it takes time and contemplation. There's a social theorist and cultural critic named Neil Postman. And in his book entitled, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he shares on what he calls uh, information action ratio. And here's what this is. Information action ratio indicates the relationship between a piece of information and what action, if any, a consumer of that information might reasonably be expected to take once learning it. So the idea of this is that there's an, uh, an idea of, okay, I take an information, I ponder that information. Now, what is my reasonable action to this information? But here's the problem. We live in a time of information overload. I listened to a podcast last week and they gave this stat. One edition of the New York Times contains as much information as a 17th century Englishman would have encountered over his entire life. Think about that for just a moment. See, it used to be where the information you would take in would be so much more localized or from your family or, or you know, stories that you pass on from, from friends in your community and you wouldn't be aware of everything. Now, there are good things that we have now become aware of because we're so globally connected, but here's also the problem. What Postman would say is that it leads to now a, a low information to action ratio. You're bombarded with stuff all day long and guess what? You're not doing anything about any of it because you're overwhelmed. You go on Facebook, you go on Instagram, or you have conversations at work, you hear about all these things that you could be doing with your time, all these things you could do with your money. Do, go to this cause, do this, do this. And guess what really happens? You end up sitting there being like, oh, this is all really, really nice. I'm not gonna do any of it because you're overwhelmed. Now, here's the problem. That same low information to action ratio, it happens in here too. Because I might be able to stand here and say, hey, you need to look and remember the goodness of God. Slow down a little bit in your life. Realize where you have fallen, as Jesus said to this church, and you need to repent from the evil ways. You need to turn. And guess what happens? It kind of just is treated like every other information. You know, there's this reality in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, the teachings of Jesus and the apostle Paul speaks of this idea of the more you hear truth and you do not respond, the harder your heart gets. So for some of us, it's actually a real gamble to be in here tonight because you are hearing truth. You're giving the opportunity to respond to that truth. And if you don't, you're leaving here with a harder heart than when you came. And then guess what? When you hear more truth, it's gonna be harder even then to respond. And eventually you look back and you go, oh my gosh, I'm not who I thought I was. 
And you might still have the shallow casing of someone who serves in church and might be able to tweet the right verse or whatever it might be, but you realize that intimacy with Jesus is gone. And that has to change, church. That has to shift. That's not sustainable. In the midst of the times we live in, yeah, we need to be orthodox. Yeah, we need orthopraxy. Yes, all of that is fantastic, but it needs to be rooted in love for Jesus so that it can be sustainable for the long term. Some of us need to slow down. Some of us need to learn to say no. Some of us need to, to get back to that place. What is it? You know, do the works you did before. Some of us need to do the works we did before. When you first came to an understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, what did you do? You probably spent time in prayer, even though you had no idea what you were doing, which is beautiful because there's no perfect way to pray. And you probably didn't even really know what was going on in the scriptures, but you, you got your Bible out anyway and you, you tried to read it each morning because there was that first love that you had because you realized what Jesus did on the cross. You realize what's at stake here. You realize that you can receive that free gift of salvation. And in the very beginning, that overwhelmed you, but you've walked away from your first love. Some of us in this room right now, you have walked away from your first love. And again, you might have this ability to have this outward expression of right believing and right living. But again, as I've said it over and over, you eventually will begin to crumble in that if it's not rooted in the person, the work of Jesus. And the biggest thing that the church can do is to live out a different alternative from the rest of the world around us. And what that means for you is that when you wake up in the morning, before scrolling through all of the mindless stuff on your phone, you actually take time to be with Jesus. Much like the story of Mary and Martha, you, yeah, there's work to be done, yes, but what's best is to sit at his feet and just listen. Some of you, before entering into your workspace, you need to go a little bit earlier just to sit in your car and just say, God, is there anything you might wanna say to me today? Is there an encouragement that you might want to speak to me so that I could give it to somebody else? Some of you, you need to start drawing your family around the table and you need to reflect together on the goodness of God. Some of you need to shut off the television. If we're defined by first love, by what we spend most of our time with, I shudder to think what for some of us it might be. So you've heard a bunch of information tonight, but what are you gonna do about it? My hope would be that our hearts would be broken before God. And as we are about to sing this song saying, all hail King Jesus, might some of you, before you speak those words, maybe some of you need to get on your knees and you need to say, Father, I confess for what I've made of my Christian experience. I too, like this church, have left my first love, which is you. And I repent of that. And I repent of all the different behaviors and the attitudes and the things connected to my disconnection from you. See, it'd be nice to think that we all have sound orthodoxy and we all are living out the way of Jesus, but the reality is for some of us, we're not hitting any of the three. But guess what? I say that out of love. That's what we do here. 
We're calling ourselves to be the types of people that Jesus called us to be. There's no easy way out of this. And so we'll continue to come to the scripture. We'll continue to come to the words of Jesus. We'll continue to come to the words of God and say, Father, let me take your word, press it so I can examine my life, see where I am not aligning, repent of that, and then walk in forgiveness and mercy and receive your goodness. And then watch and see what God wants to do in us and through us. So church, I'm invite you to stand to your feet. And we're gonna take the next five minutes, we're gonna sing this song. And I'm gonna ask you for this not to be lip service. I'm gonna ask you to really do some reflection in your heart right now. And maybe this is just a, a returning for you to love with Jesus. May he convict some of our hearts tonight as he's convicted my heart this past week. Let's worship together.